Well, welcome to our second season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back. And if you're a first-time listener, we hope you enjoy the podcast and we'll come back next week. We have a great list of guests this spring season, and you can read about them by going to www.jackwwilliams.com and just scroll down to the podcast section. Well, today we're joined by an Ideals alumnus, Jason Cook. Jason was a four-year starter in football as a fullback at the University of Mississippi, or better known as Ole Miss. Uh, He was elected captain and was actually invited to the NFL Draft Combine as a fullback, and that's a very rare thing to happen. Uh, He started his career with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, working with athletes there at Ole Miss, and then began his mission in the world of ministry. And Jason is currently the senior pastor at Roswell Fellowship Church in Roswell, Georgia. Jason, uh, you know, as I said, you're an Ideals alumnus and, and one that we are obviously very proud of. And we've had some really outstanding young people come through our Ideals program since 1993. And I got to say, your talk uh, or conversation, I should say, that you gave at our banquet the year that you completed uh, Ideals was one of the best I've ever heard. And I told someone that night that when, when you're ready to run for president, I'm signing up to be your campaign manager. Uh, but now I'm going to, I'm going to humble you a little bit. Um, even though you were a dual sport there and, and athlete in high school, and as we said, a four-year starter at Ole Miss and was a free agent signee with the Baltimore Ravens, you may not be the best athlete in your family, right? I'm not. Hands down, I'm not the best athlete in my family. <laughs> I've got a little brother. I've got a little brother who takes the cake. Uh, Jared Cook, 12-year NFL vet, currently playing with the LA Chargers. Last week had five catches, almost 70 yards. He's he's incredible, an incredible athlete. So when it comes to being an athlete, yeah, I'm definitely not the tops in my own family. <laughs> That's pretty hard to say as a four-year starter and not be number one. Uh, well, listen, you've always uh, had a passion for people. We saw it during your high school days. We saw it during your time at Ideals. Um, so I was not at all surprised when you decided to enter the ministry. Kind of walk us through the process of making that career choice. Yeah, great question. So I think um, I had a very keen and early sense that I was called to ministry at 13. I knew it, uh, but I didn't immediately want to run into ministry. I was afraid. I didn't want to be a pastor. Uh, I wanted really just to play football and make a ton of money. And I don't know if you know this about ministers, but we don't typically get paid a ton of money, uh, especially (laughs) comparative to what uh, professional athletes do. I think uh, I ran from that calling until really I achieved the greatest, um, uh, achieved the dream of my childhood, which was scoring a touchdown in the NFL. It just so happened that when I was playing for Baltimore, we were playing in Atlanta against the Falcons and my entire family's there, sort of a storybook. Uh, narrative, and I reached this pinnacle, scoring his touchdown, realized how empty it was, and was really confronted with the choice, do I uh, do something that I'm good at, but I don't love, or do I go and do something that I've been called to do since I was 13, and so that day, I quit, I walked away from the game, and it took incredible courage and fortitude, but I think I was so confident that I knew exactly what I was supposed to be doing, that the decision actually was fairly easy, the follow-through uh, proved to be difficult, but the decision uh, proved to be easy. And so ended up coming on staff at FCA at Ole Miss for two years as a football chaplain before I headed off to seminary. And it was a great place to cut my teeth in ministry. 
Well, and you had an opportunity to, I think, work with a couple of church plants before getting involved with larger churches. So that's always a great uh, training ground. That really kind of tests your calling uh, when you're in that uh, in that mode. Yeah. Um, you know, as a pastor, uh, you got to wear a lot of different hats. And uh, what is there a particular hat that you enjoy the most? And if so, why? Yeah, that's a great question. So I there are. There are two hats. Uh, let me say it this way. There is, if I wear three basic hats, there's two of them that I love wearing and there's one of them that I have to wear. So, so the two that I love wearing, I love wearing the sort of shepherding or care hat. Like I, I love, I love people and I'm in the people business. And uh, that sounds really cheesy and cliche, but I think enough folks are, uh, experience being used or being used for means rather than themselves being the means and the ends and of themselves. So when someone comes to our church and when someone comes to my office and sits down, they are the most important person that I'm speaking with at that moment. My phone's not important to me. Folks that might have a pressing question at the door, they're going to have to wait because for that 20 to 30 to 40 minutes, that's the most important person. So I really love uh, wearing the, 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 the care hat. Um, I really love the spoken word, preaching, teaching hat. I, I just, I, I love it. And I, I think that words are powerful. I've got a, my first degree in college is in English. Um, there's something about the timeless nature of words and how something so immaterial can have a material um, uh, sort of tangible uh, matter to it. And the fact that they reverberate long after we're gone. So I love that. And then if the third hat is leadership hat, that's the one that I have to wear. I don't love to wear it as much, but I have to wear it. And as a leader, there are certain things that I love about leadership, and then there's things about leadership that's really difficult. Making the hard call when no one else is willing to, to do that in a context where uh, a church is, yes, it's a cause, uh, but it's also a corporation and it's a community. Um, and that can get kind of sticky when you start talking uh, business-like things within the church world. It can get complicated. So that's the hat that I, that I have to wear that I enjoy, but not nearly as much as the other two. You know, I think that's a, a common issue with um, with pastors is understanding the balance between uh, the church, the ministry, and uh, a business, and and all the aspects that come with business and personnel, and uh, you know, personnel in a church have to perform just like they have to perform everywhere else, and if they don't, sometimes it's that's not the best location for them, and, and those are tough calls, and sometimes people don't see that. Uh, you know, why does that happen in a church? And they don't understand all the dynamics that are associated with, with the ministry. So uh, I, I know exactly where you're coming from on that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to give you a tough question here. If you can answer this one, we'll, we'll broadcast this nationally. Uh, <laughs> our society, in my opinion, it's opinion of one, but I think it's shared by others, uh, has transitioned over the years, unfortunately, to one of labels and blame and not accepting personal responsibility and accountability for our actions and not showing respect for one, one another. You know, it always seems to be somebody else's fault. It's never, you know, that person. What's, what's your thoughts on that? And, and do you have any ideas about how we can move out of that culture and move back toward one of uh, personal respect and personal accountability? 
Just an uh, just a softball question for you. Yeah, it is. Uh, man, I'm so I'm a very detailed, nuanced thinker, and we don't have the time or the space to for me to answer the question in part because I don't have an answer to the question, and I just want to be very upfront. I have some ideas about how we can uh, do that, about how we can get back there, but I don't know the answer to the question because um, I think it would be foolish to offer a dime-sized answer to a million-dollar question. Um, I will say, though, that I think overall personal responsibility is part of the conversation and a big part of the conversation. At the same time, we also have to talk about accountability, and we can't excuse behaviors um, where we place blame on people where the blame should be placed on ourselves. So in the same way that there is a lack of personal responsibility to own our mistakes, there's also the same reflexive activity to, um, to blame others for their own suffering or for their own missteps when really those reasonings might be far more complex. Um, I think personally, and again, we don't have time to get into this, but I think uh, until you understand the, that everyone has a context, until you understand that everyone um, is, has, a, has, a, has a viewpoint of the world that's like looking through a keyhole as opposed to looking through a windshield, and when you recognize your own worldview is like looking through a keyhole and you have a ton to learn, you have a ton to realize that you don't know everything and you're not the authority on all things truth, and when it comes to understanding that uh, we desperately need each other, if we were slow enough to actually build relationships, then I think some of these uh, large issues that we see over time could wane. Last thing I'll say, um, a lot of this began, one theory is, Jack, that a lot of this began to deteriorate when front porches started to die. I don't know if you've heard this before, but there's the, the ideal that when you had front porches and stoops and community was massive before sort of the iPhone uh, cell phone age and we're all sort of addicted to the gadgets in our pockets. There was a day and age when the front porch was a gathering space and it was a place where there was a conversation, there was conflict resolution, there was love. Um, and so when the front porches begin to die, those communities begin to die. And so I think part of what we need to do, and which is difficult in the age of COVID, is to, to reconnect on a personal level to really understand the whole person, not just as a sum total of the actions that they perform, but also an entire person's context. And that takes time and it takes patience. And so Again, I don't have the answer, Jack. I wish I did. I wish I had a magic bullet. I wish it was a red pill or a blue pill. I ain't got it. Um, but that's part of what we're trying to do here at Fellowship is to get people face-to-face -to, -face to have conversations instead of lobbing grenades virtually at one another across um, the internet. Well, I think that's, I think that's very insightful. Uh, you know, we've, we've gone from a relationship society to a transactional society. And we've gone from personal relationships to invisible relationships through social media. And, uh, and people are just totally insensitive because they don't know each other. And uh, until, uh, you know, until we get talk to somebody on the phone or we talk to somebody face to face, instead of doing it through some of this magical Internet, uh, when, when everybody gets brave and bold uh, and says whatever they want to say and doesn't worry about the impact nor their own accountability. I get tickled at people to call in on these uh, sports talk radios and they jump all over these coaches. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could film them one day at work or a week at work and let's criticize their work. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Right. All right. Well, we we semi solved that problem. Uh, <laughs> let me go back to a simpler simpler question. Um, growing up uh, and and still growing up, did did you have a, a mentor in your life? And, and if so, how did that process work? We try to emphasize that with a lot of our listeners that regardless of what age you are, seeking out mentors or becoming a mentor is very important. And if you did have one, uh, how did it work? And, and what was, was there anything particular from an advice standpoint that they shared that really stuck with you? Yeah. So my mentor growing up was my dad. Um, and from the time I left home at 18 until four months ago, I have had a mentor in every city that I've lived in. Uh, it's one of the first things that I do when I'm in a place is I identify an older, wiser, um, available man that I can learn from and watch and follow. So um, at Ole Miss, it was two men, a guy named Wes Yeary, a guy named Jonathan Rainey. When I moved to Birmingham for seminary, the whole time I was there was a man named Jason Williams, who was a leader of a nonprofit and a former pastor in Birmingham. When I moved to Memphis, it was a man named Randy Odom, who um, I had actually had uh, lunch last week with he and some other guys when he was here in town. And so now being here in Atlanta, it's the first time that I've not had an on-site in-city mentor. And I basically take some time to identify who do I want to learn from, uh, who not only cares for me, but who is uh, in possession of something that I desperately want to learn. And so I go to those men, uh, I approach them myself, I build relationships, I uh, ask them to coffee, I ask them to lunch, ask them to, to go hang out, play ball, whatever. At a certain point, once we built some rapport, I then asked them um, the heavy question, will they become my mentor? And I asked them that question knowing what it will cost them. Um, it's going to cost me, right, some time, but it's going to cost them time, resources, energy. Um, it potentially would cost them time away from their family. And so I give them typically about a week or two to think and pray about it. And then I approach them again and say, hey, is this something that um, that you would like to do? And one of the reasons why I found them incredibly important is uh, the time with these men. They they cut my own time. Uh, they make living more efficient because they've made mistakes and they failed in ways that they can like almost certainly allow me to avoid. And they show me things that I'd never be able to find out on my own. And so. Um, I, I am currently in the process of looking for a mentor here in, in Roswell, um, an older, wiser, godly man that I can learn from and sit underneath for a time. Um, and uh, yeah, so I love him. I believe in it. Uh, I, will, I will always have a mentor until the day that I die, because I believe that much, that, that wholeheartedly into it. Has there been any one thing that you've learned from any of them that really was a uh, aha moment for you more than the others? Oh, man, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot. Um, uh, the, from, from two of them in particular, probably the greatest thing that I've learned from both of them is a self-forgetfulness and an other-centeredness that knocks people off balance. People aren't, people aren't expecting, most folks aren't expecting you to be very interested in them. Most folks are expecting you to be very, very interested in yourself. And so to have an other centeredness and a selflessness, even a self-forgetfulness 
um, for the sake of other people feeling heard, feeling welcomed, for other people uh, to give people space, to time, the process, not to fix them, uh, but in true and genuine care, uh, both is a gift that they've offered me and it's the thing that I'm finding um, in a disconnected age is one of the things that uh, is really beautiful uh, when you give somebody the space to to really process and be themselves. And so that one tidbit of others focused self-forgetfulness is rails against everything in our modern ego. Um, but I found it to be one of the most fruitful things that I've been able to employ in all of the myriad of lessons that those men have taught me. That's great advice. Uh, we'll wrap up here with one, one last question. Um, most of us have, have had some type of experience or situation in our life that really was really challenged us. Um, have you had one of those? And, and if so, what was it? And, and how'd you kind of work through it? Yeah, well, you might say, Jack, a minute. Um, I am just transitioned into the largest um, and perhaps most powerful role that I've ever experienced and had in my life at 35. Uh, I am being uh, accused of things and, and people love to accuse and, and criticize people and things that they don't know and decisions they don't have to make. Um, and I think the biggest thing in this process that I'm learning and how I'm able to walk through such a, a time of scrutiny and pressure, that's how I would describe it. It's, it's pressure. The pressure is for me to become, in a sense, all things to all people and for me to bend to every will and desire that these people have. However, um, I've always got to remember that in my, in my profession, in my faith, that even Jesus, um, people had expectations for Jesus. He couldn't meet them all. They killed him and he was God. And there's a sense <laughs> in which there's a ton of pressure that gets relieved when you realize that everyone's going to have expectations on you at some point. You would be foolish to try to live up to them. In fact, you'll burn yourself out. Um, and so I think becoming comfortable with understanding that you are human, to embrace boundaries, to embrace your limitation, to understand that you can't impress everybody and you can't meet everybody's expectations, uh, nor, and you shouldn't. Um, and the freedom that comes with knowing, hey, yeah, you know what, they're right, I'm not really good at that. And I probably won't be good at that. So what am I going to do? I'm going to delegate my weaknesses, and I'm going to work on my strengths. Um, and there are ways in which you can identify lies, what are true lies and realize, and, you know, so much of what this person's angry at, they're not really mad and angry at me, they're mad and angry at something else. I just happen to be the person they're taking their anger out of, which actually has made me a lot more of a compassionate person. And so I think um, in the midst of great difficulty, I'm always asking the question, what is um, being downloaded into me and what is being weaned out of me? What am I being weaned off of? So what is, what is the lesson I'm learning, but what also is the thing that's leading me? And I think in this season, the thing that I'm learning is um, I'm learning about healthy boundaries. I'm learning about healthy uh, ways to view myself. And I think a lot of what's leaving me, Jack, is this idea of people pleasing, uh, of trying to rise to unreasonable expectations, and the courage that it takes to, to truly legitimately lead across an organization when several people in the organization don't want to be led. And so I would say I'm, I'm in that right now. Those are some of the things I'm learning. Jason, uh, I'm going to wrap up with this. Uh, John Vaughn, one of our other guests, wrote a book on accountability, and uh, it, it's a journal that you write, you answer one question, 
every day. And the question today was, are you living for acceptance or from acceptance? And I said, wow, that's a really good question. And that's, that's kind of what you were talking about there. Um, well, Jason, I, I can't tell you what a real treat it is to, to spend time with you. Uh, and just thank you so much for sharing with us your insights today. And I really look forward to hearing about all the great things that are going to be happening over at uh, Roswell Fellowship under your leadership hat. And as I said earlier, when you decide to run for president, uh, when that course correction changes, uh, I'll be waiting for your call to join the campaign. OK, I'll, I'll put out the signs. Um, so thanks again for, for being with us, Jason. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. You can have me on anytime, brother. Just give me a shout. Okay. Well, I hope you uh, enjoyed today's time with Jason. And, and once again, I want to encourage you to, to make it your goal to be a positive influence in the lives of others. Hey, before you go, we wanted to let you know about Jack's book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question. In this book, Jack shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide his life. Whether you are a spouse, parent, grandparent, friend, leader, educator, coach, or mentor, Jack's I Believe statements apply to all of the roles he has played during his lifetime and can do the same for you. Jack's message applies to all people, ages, and careers. It's an easy read with compelling stories, enjoyable humor, and sincere transparency. The question is now available in ebook and paperback exclusively on Amazon. Go to jackwwilliams.com slash the question to learn more and buy your copy today. Again, thanks for joining us for this episode and join us next week for an all new episode of KnowledgeCast by Ideals.